If you have your Bible, you can open up to the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, there should be pew ones somewhere around. I'm just preaching out of the pew Bible this morning, and uh, looks like it's on page 88. So you can open up to page 88 there. And while you're turning there, I'll just get us started. Um, Joel left off two weeks ago, and he just finished Genesis. And so we're just moving on over into Exodus. And there's a lot of time that's passed between Genesis and Exodus, um, like 400 plus years, actually. Um, That's a lot of time. And uh, what has happened in Exodus is not good in chapter 1. So to set the stage, it would be helpful just to ask you, I'm sure you've probably had this happen before, and it's not a good feeling. Have you ever been told you're going to get a new boss? (laughs) And it's like, depending on your boss, that might be really good, right? You might be saying, praise God, (laughs) I've been praying for that for years. (laughs) Or it might be a terrible ordeal. You might love your boss. Um, I know we're getting a new principal next year at high school, and I'm, I'm not too happy about it. He's, he does a pretty good job in a lot of ways. And so this idea of getting a new boss, it can change everything. And that's exactly what's happened in Exodus chapter 1 here. There's a new boss in town. He's not just a boss. He's like the ruler of Egypt, which is the number one country in the world. So it's big change, right? Kings come, kings go. And a new king has arisen. And this king, well, he's not a king that, that we like very much. He, uh, he does not remember Joseph. If you remember at the end of Genesis, Joseph was second in command under Pharaoh, and all of the Israelites were there in Egypt, living high on the hog, under the favors of Joseph, and everything was just great. I mean, it was really good. And then this happened. So we'll read Exodus 1. 6 through 10, to get us started. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So, he said we must deal shrewdly, and this sets up the rest of chapter 1. How does he deal shrewdly? Well, he does three things. Um, first, he makes their life terrible by making them build cities. That's like verse like 11 and 12, I think. And yet, the Israelites keep multiplying, Right? And then he makes them do even more work, this time making brick and mortar and all that. And yet the Israelites continue multiplying and becoming more of a threat to Egypt, and they're still scared. This guy's so scared. What do I do if these people turn against me? We're toast. And I can't kill them, right, because they're more numerous than we are. So he's in a pickle. And finally, he has the great idea, the third attempt to squash the Israelites at the end of chapter 1. He says, we will throw every boy born... Every Israelite boy born into the Nile River. What a great idea. I mean, it's just wicked, right? That's what we'll do. But the Egyptian midwives don't even follow suit. And so the Egyptian boys live. 
Here, though, is the problem of Exodus chapter 1. God's people, the Israelites, are slaves in a foreign land. That is the problem. And now that we see the problem, we're in a position to work our way through the book in a nice, orderly fashion. So, as a way to get through the book and see how does God fix this slavery problem, and what is the actual problem with this, this slavery? What's the actual problem? We'll find out by the end of the book of Exodus. might not be what you think it is. Say, what's, I mean, that's obvious. They're slaves. That's not the biggest problem. Um, we'll work through Exodus, and we'll do it in, I think it's five steps. Can I count? F-A-C-T-S. Yep, I have an acronym to help us remember. I thought if we're going through 40 chapters, it might be good to have an acronym to help you hang on to some stuff. So it's FACTS, not F-A-X. F-A-C-T-S. FACTS. I, I tried to make it like free or something like that. I thought free would go nicely with Exodus. I couldn't figure out how to do it. Best I could do is FACTS. So F-A-C-T-S, we got freedom, attitude, covenant, tabernacle, and separation. If you want to do sin, you can do sin as well for the S. I'm kind of doing double duty with the final S. I guess that'd be like facts with a lisp, you know, <laughs> like facts, double S. So F-A-C-T-S, freedom, attitude, tabernacle, I'm sorry, covenant, then tabernacle, and finally separation. And those five letters will sum up the next 39 chapters of Exodus for us. So we'll take each letter at a time, and we'll work, we, we will work through the book, and when we get to the end, we'll respond to the book of Exodus. What does the book of Exodus mean for us? How do we live in accordance with God's word? And, and what are we to do with this gigantic piece of literature? What is its purpose? So we will start working through that now. And I'm so excited to do this. I and mean, it's not often you get to do this. But we just finished Genesis, so Joel did a whole overview on Genesis. And now we're going the other way. We're doing an overview at the beginning this time. And I won't say everything. In fact, I'll probably say not much, right? I can't cover everything. But that's the point of the next weeks. We're going to go into depth and cover these things in detail. So I'm super excited. So if you have a question and you're wondering why I skipped something, you can ask me afterwards, but... The reason I skipped is because we just didn't have time. So the first letter is F, freedom. And this is probably the most famous part of the book of Exodus. There's been three movies made about this that I'm aware of. In the 50s, they had Ten Commandments. With, what was that, Charlton, Charleston Heston or Charlton Heston? I don't even know how to say his name. And then in, like in the 1990s, they had that animated movie. Um, is that The Prince of Egypt? Is that that one? Yeah, I see some heads nodded. And then, like, five years ago, they had, was it Christian Bale in this movie, Gods and Kings? If I have a question, I just look at Mike. He's like, he's got this for me. Thank you, Mike. So this is a common story, and uh, it's been in the movies a lot lately. So you probably know about this, even if you haven't read the Bible. I've not seen any of these movies. Um, but what's the say? how's the saying go? You know, the book's better anyway, right? So um, we'll cover this briefly, because I think we have more of an understanding of these 15 chapters 2 through 15 with the freedom here. So freedom, freedom from slavery, right? And you know the basic story. 
God raises up Moses. He goes. He says, let my people go on behalf of Yahweh. Pharaoh says, no way. Who are you? I'm not going to listen to you. Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? And then there's this battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh. And Yahweh wins, like, big time. (laughs) Big time. Like, oh, you Pharaoh people, you believe in a frog god? Well, frogs are going to ruin your life. You believe in the sun god, Ra? Well, the sun's going to shut down for three days. Like, game over. You don't mess with the Lord and come out on top. You just don't do it. And some places to look at in particular. First, the Israelites are enslaved. Chapter 2. And they cry out, oh God, help us. And then we get this great verse in chapter 3, verse 1. God has raised up Moses, and look at chapter 3, verse 1. Moses is on the run. He's in the wilderness shepherding sheep. He's getting ready to go. Well, he doesn't know it yet, but he's about to get ready to go and save the people from Egypt. And in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And then, that sounds so ominous, doesn't it? The mountain of God. And then you get the burning bush, where God appears to Moses in a burning bush. So, God is everywhere. We know that from Scripture. 1 Kings 8, Solomon says, I built a temple for you, but not even the heavens can contain you. He's everywhere, and yet sometimes God chooses to dwell in certain places in a special way. Apparently, he's been hanging out at Mount Horeb also known as Mount Sinai. Because Moses goes there, and who does he meet? God, in a burning bush. And then God says this in verse 12 of chapter 3, And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you, and that's plural, y'all, if you're from Louisiana like me, Y'all, you and the Israelites, will worship God on this mountain. It's like, what is so special about this mountain? It's Horeb, the mountain of God, and you're going to come to this mountain, all of you. It's like, what is so special about this mountain? That's what we're wondering. And I want to say one more thing before we move on past freedom. Who does God rescue from slavery, an Egyptian slavery? And if you've read the Bible or even just watched movies... You know the answer. You're like, oh, it's the Israelites. That's easy. It is. But I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 22. In particular, God is rescuing his son. Exodus 4, 22. God calls Israel his son. Then say to Pharaoh. So the Lord is telling Moses what he's going to do. It's like, go to Pharaoh and tell him this. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And that happens. That's the final plague. Pharaoh has been killing God's son, Israel. And so God, in equal punishment, kills the firstborn sons of Egypt. So, God is on a mission to rescue his son, Israel, through Moses. And he does it. They escape, pass through the Red Sea, which is incredible. (laughs) 
And then the Red Sea swallows up the Egyptians once they enter into the body of water there and pursuing, right? They get swallowed up and they get defeated. And God has saved his people. It's like the seven-minute version of Exodus 2 through 15, okay? So just real quick. God has brought freedom to his people. And you would think that you'd be grateful. (laughs) I mean, if you were a slave and you had a man hovering over you with a whip, tearing your back to shreds all day long, and then you weren't doing that anymore, you'd probably, like, praise God. And they do that a little bit in Exodus 15. But immediately after they're on the other side of the Red Sea, they don't praise God. They actually grumble and complain the whole time. And so to make the acronym work, I just call this attitude. They cop an attitude with God. They are not thankful at all for the salvation he has delivered, he has, he has given to them. They have an attitude against God. They don't think their problems with God. They think their problems with Moses. In Exodus 15, the end of 15, and in Exodus 17, they say, good job, Moses, way to save us. Can't believe you did that. Now we're just going to die in the wilderness, and it's all your fault. <laughs> this is really their, this is their reaction. And in chapter 16, it's not water. This time it's food. They say, good job, Moses. You brought us through the Red Sea just so we could die of starvation in the wilderness. Wow, that's an attitude. (laughs) But here's the thing they don't realize. Look at Exodus 16, verse 7 and 8. Exodus 16, 7 and 8. We'll just go 6 through 8. This is when they're asking for meat and food and talking about how great life was back in Egypt. (laughs) So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, not Moses, the Lord. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat. And at the end of the verse, once again, he says, you are grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. You see the problem here, right? They're like, Moses, it's all your fault. You split the sea. Now we're out here in the desert. We have nothing to eat or drink. And Moses is like, you don't get it. It wasn't me. It was the Lord. The Lord did this. Your argument against me is actually an attack against him. And they fail to see this. And instead of gratitude, they have grumbling. They have an attitude fueled by lack of faith in the Lord. That's chapter 16 16 through 18. And you're like, wow. What can fix this attitude? And where are they going? Why are they in the wilderness? Well, who remembers? Where are they going? They're going to the mountain. Why? We'll figure out shortly. But God wants to bring them to this mountain for some reason. So on they go, grumbling through the wilderness. It's kind of like your child on like the seventh hour of the road trip. You know, it's like, are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. That's why we're driving. (laughs) How long will we be there? I don't know. (laughs) When will we be there? When the car stops? You know, like that's the clue. That's kind of the sense you get as you're reading these narratives. It's like grumble, grumble, grumble. And then finally, chapter 19, verse 1. We'll read 19, 1 and 4. We move to the mountain. They finally reach the mountain. And this is the covenant. 
God makes a covenant with his people here. Eventually, when we get all the way through FACTS, we'll be able to put this together and we'll say, what was the point of that whole story? So we're just taking one little block at a time and eventually we'll put the blocks together and we'll have a great, a great building there. So, 19.1 through 4. In the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai, after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Did you catch why the mountain is so important in that verse? It's important because that's where God is choosing to dwell. That's why it's important. Did you see that at the end of verse 4? What is God doing? He is bringing them to himself. And for whatever reason, he's dwelling at this mountain. I have no idea why. You can ask him when you get to heaven. This is big. Realize what's happened here. Why did God set his people free from slavery? Why? Was it because the work hours were terrible? No. It's because they were being mistreated. Fundamentally, no. It is because they were not with him. That is why. He is bringing them to himself. Come to me. I have borne you up on eagles' wings. It's like I've carried you. I've flown you to this mountain. I brought you so you could be here with me. I want to be with you. You're like my son. You were gone and now you're home. Welcome back. That's what's going on. And then he continues the message in verses 5 through 6. 19. Now if you obey, literally listen fully to me and keep my covenant should be probably translated, and if out, of, if out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession, even though the whole world is mine, then you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to tell the people of Israel. So now we've entered into this covenant. God has brought his people to himself. He says, I want to be with you. I want to be near you. That's why I rescued you. And how do you formalize a close relationship? How do you make it official? Even today, the answer is the same. Do a covenant. We don't have many covenants left in our world today, but we have at least one left. I went to one yesterday. A wedding! A marriage! What is it when you say, I love you so much I want to be with you forever. That's why I want to be near you. And you want to make it official. What do you call that? A wedding. It's no accident that texts like Jeremiah 31 look back at this moment and say, that was a wedding. Hosea chapter 2 look back at this Sinai moment and they call it a wedding. This is like a wedding here. You say, I want to make this official. And we get official now, right? Like, when's it official in our culture today? It's official when it's on Facebook. That's when it's official. When you post it on Facebook, it's serious. 
Man, times have changed, huh? <laughs> I remember a month before I started going out with my wife, I took my relationship status off of Facebook so no one would know. And even still, everyone had it figured out. They said, oh, he took his relationship status off of Facebook. That means he's going to go out with somebody soon. I was like, you people are way up in my business too much. We make it official now by putting it on Facebook, or whatever that's worth. Back then, they made it official through what's called a covenant, which is basically a relationship with rules, like a wedding, like a marriage. What's the rules? I will be with you forever. I will not be unfaithful to you, whether I'm sick, whether I'm healthy, whether I'm rich, whether I'm poor. Those are the rules. And those rules hold the relationship together, right? And you have the same thing here. Moses has come down from the mountain and told them the rules. Listen to God. Follow him and you'll be, a, you'll be his representatives to the nations. And in verse 8, they say, We will do everything the Lord has said. Good. We agree to the rules. We'll do them. And God says, great. If you're in on this, let me show you who I really am. And he comes down in a burning fireball on Mount Sinai. And this time he does not set a bush on fire. He sets a whole mountain on fire. He sets the whole mountain on fire. He says, this is who I am. I am that incredible. I am here to be with you. And the people, they just rush up the mountain and say, we love you, Lord. No. <laughs> they are terrified, as you probably would too. When's the last time you rushed into a mountain on fire? <laughs> You've done that in the past week? I don't think so. And the people didn't either. They said, we are not doing it. We are not going up in that. We'll die. Moses, you go. <laughs> it makes you wonder what they think about Moses. <laughs> Moses, you go. They know, they know Moses is close to God. They're like, Moses, you go and get God's words, and you tell them to us, and we'll listen to you, but we cannot hear his words and live. So Moses does this, and he comes back with the words, and he communicates the words to them in Exodus 24. This is where the ten words, the ten commandments come from, and the other laws. And you get this in Exodus 24, verse 7. He has come down with additional words, additional rules to make this relationship work. And in Exodus 24, 7, they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. This sounds great. It's like another wedding. This is just awesome. That's what's going on. They're going to obey. And then there's a key link in Exodus 24, 16. You have to look at Exodus 24, 16 for the next part of the story to make sense. So look at Exodus 24, 16 before we move on out of covenant. Start in verse 15. And Moses went up on the mountain. The cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. The NIV that I just read has the word settled there at the beginning of verse 16. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And that's, that's a fine translation. Uh, Hebrew shakan here. It's the idea of a house. He, I saw, in, uh, Jim showed me in the King James Version, it has, he aboded on the mountain. That's very archaic and it's very good. He housed on the mountain. He aboded 
on the mountain. He dwelt, he dwelt on the mountain is what you might have. Those are all good, tra- they're all fine. I just want you to know what the word means. It's the idea of like, I'm going to live there. That's the idea. Okay? So, once you get married, you move in together, right? But they didn't move in together. They're actually like running away from God, terrified. You are consuming fire. You are so holy. We cannot go near you. We will die. God says, I have an idea. I want to be with you. That's why I rescued you. I have a plan. I'm going to build a tabernacle. And that leads us to T for facts. And you see this in Exodus 25 verse 8. Exodus 25 verse 8. He has given Moses instructions, God is, on how to build this tabernacle. Which is like a portable shack, kind of. And in 25 verse 8 it says, Then have them, have the people of Israel, make a sanctuary for me. And I will dwell among them. Same basic word as Exodus 24, 16. I will dwell among them. I will settle among them. I will abode among them. You see what's going on here, right? God aboded. He dwelled on the mountain and the people could not handle it. So he says, we're going to build this tabernacle. And I'm going to live in that tabernacle. So that way I can be with you. I want to be in your presence. I want to be surrounded by you. And they surround him when they camp. You read about the, the configurations of where they, uh, how, the, how they set their camp in numbers. God is in the heart of the camp. He wants to be with his son. These are metaphors, right? He wants to be with his son. He wants to be with his bride. And so you get all of these descriptions of the tabernacle. How to build it. Chapters 25 through 31. And then they actually build it in chapters 35 through 40. It's like 10 chapters of like blueprint, reading a blueprint. Like You couldn't just copy and paste a blueprint in the Bible. <laughs> so they had to spell it all out, and they do. But what's the point of it all? This is God making a home with his people because he wants to be with them. He will like... Put the dam- He's like, there's a damper switch on my glory, and I'm going to lower it down, so that way I can be with my people and not consume them in fire. This is like God moving in after pledging himself to his people, and after they have pledged themselves back. It's amazing to me that it sounds so foreign, but it's really pretty similar to what happens today. This whole marriage metaphor and all that. Then finally, you get the S. Separation or sin. You could go either way. Turn to the very end of the book, chapter 40. The tabernacle is finally finished. You see that at the end of chapter 40, verse 33. And so Moses finished the work. The work is done. The tabernacle is built. And then you get shocking... News. I mean, this is just shocking news. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the same word from Exodus 24:16. The cloud covered the mountain. Now the cloud covers the tents of meeting. God's moving in. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses, here's the shock, could not enter 
the tent of meeting. He could not meet with God. Because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay, you scholars, let me ask you, why can't Moses enter into the tabernacle? The whole point of the tabernacle is to tone it down so that he can be with the people. But Moses can go up on the mountain, but he can't go in a tabernacle? You can walk in fire, but you can't walk through a front door? What is going on? What is the problem? The whole point of the book is that God wants to be with his people, and you get to the end of the book, and they're still not together. What's the problem? You don't get the answer in in Exodus. You actually get the answer in Leviticus 9. They have to perform sacrifices. And once burnt offerings and peace offerings and sacrifices have been made, then the priests can enter into the tabernacle and they can be fully with God and God can be fully with his people. There is sin among the ranks. As long as it's between Moses and God, there's no problem. But as soon as God dwells among the people... There's a problem. The people are incredibly sinful. And Moses, as the representative, cannot enter into the tabernacle. Because God hates sin. What is this sin that is standing between God and his people? Exodus 32, 33, and 34. The golden calf. One of the low points in Israelite history. Everything. Moses is up on the mountain. You probably know the story. I hope you do. Moses is up on the mountain, in the fire, talking with God. And the people at the bottom of the mountain are like, I have an idea. We don't know what happened to Moses. Let's make a calf out of gold and worship it and say, this is our God. What a great idea. And all the while, Moses is getting the commandment, thou shalt not make graven images on the top of the mountain. While God is giving the command, don't make idols, they're at the base making idols. While God is saying, don't worship them, they are worshiping this calf. And so Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, he sees what's happened, and he breaks the Ten Commandments on the ground, he grinds up the golden calf into water, and makes them drink the water with gold in it. Talk about ticked. He is furious. Why does he break the tablets on the ground? He's saying, this is what you did to the marriage. You shattered it on night one. You cheated on them on your honeymoon. That's what Moses is saying. You want to talk about a bad start. And in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses goes back and he says, God, God, just, just overlook it. Don't destroy them. And God says, fine, I'll overlook it. But he does not say, I will forgive them. Forgiveness does not come until Leviticus chapter 9. And because these people are so mired in their adultery, spiritual adultery and their idolatry, they do not have fellowship with God. And the book ends. So putting it all together. Facts. Freedom. Attitude. Covenant. Tabernacle. Separation. What would be a one-sentence summary? Here's a one-sentence summary for you. God does everything he can possibly do to be with his people. That's Exodus. God sets his people free. God moves in among his people. God sets his people free, reveals himself to his people, and moves in with his people to be with them. That's Exodus. He wants to be with his people. 
He wants to be with his people. So what do we do with this? Three, three, three applications here, okay? Three applications, three responses to the book of Exodus as we make our way in future weeks through it. We'll fill this out far more. But right now, I just want to give you big book-wide responses. I could say don't grumble, right? Exodus has grumbling. But that's not book-wide. I want book-wide responses to the book of Exodus so that we can align ourselves to the whole of God's word. So what do we do with this? First, know that you are a slave to something or someone. We've talked about this before in the past at New Creation Church. But you can't not talk about it when you talk about the book of Exodus. You can't not talk about it. You've got to talk about it. In Exodus chapters 1 through 15, the whole point is how will they escape the slavery of Egypt, right? How will they escape the slavery of Egypt? One thing that you might have missed is the word for slave has a lot of meanings in Hebrew. One of them is worship. It's the word you get in Exodus 3.12 when God said, you will bring the people out of Egypt and you, you and Israel, will worship God on this mountain. You will slave God on this mountain. You will become slaves. You will serve the Lord on this mountain. How did the Ten Commandments start? This is no accident. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words. Verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slaveries, literally. What's, you catch what's going on here? I brought you out of slaveries, now I'm going to give you ten commandments. You catch the logic? You used to do what Pharaoh said, now you're going to do what I say. Because I'm the new master. You're not under slavery to Pharaoh anymore, you're a slave to the Lord. And that's the two halves of the book of Exodus. You are a slave to something. Paul makes this exact point. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Paul's not just making this stuff up. He reads the book of Exodus and he says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You will be a slave to sin or righteousness. You will be a slave, so to speak, to the ways of the world in Egypt or to the ways of the Lord. The Lord even calls the law, the covenant, righteousness in Deuteronomy 6.25. You are a slave to righteousness or the wicked system. Paul's not making this up out of thin air. We are slaves to something. You are slaves to something. Figure out what is your master. You ask yourself this question. What controls what I do? What controls what I do? Whatever controls your actions is your master. Put another way. What is it in your life that you can't stop doing? If a magical genie were to show up to you tonight and say, I am taking this from your life. What would you fight hardest over? That's your master. Hopefully it's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? 
So, no, I will serve him. He is my master. I long to be with him. Whatever controls you, whatever you can't stop doing, that's your master. Um, real quick story. Watching the video with Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist. Really smart guy. Speaking out of college. And this, he's, he's telling to these people, you're slaves. You need Jesus to set you free. And this college student just rudely says, I engage in, and he lists some illicit sexual act, every day. I can do what I want, thank you. And Ravi Zacharias just says, yeah, that's cool. Can you stop? Kid had no response. Just completely shut down. Can you stop? No, I can't. That's my point. You're a slave. Talking to one of my students a a year or two back. The student has since been expelled because he can't control himself. I told the student to do something. And the student looks at me and he says, you can't control what I do. And I look at him and I say, you don't have to worry about me controlling you. You can't control what you do. He said, what do you mean? You don't know me. I said, you cannot make yourself stop from doing things. You get an idea and it creates anger in you and you act on it and you can't stop. It consumes you. And he about lost it. He did not know what to do with that. But it's true. Whatever controls you, for a lot of people, it's pornography. It can't stop. Better. For others, it's worry. You can't stop worrying. It's just got you. And it destroys you. For some, it's substance abuse. And this doesn't have to be the hard stuff. It can just be alcohol. For others, it's the TV screen. Like, Whatever you do, God, just don't take away my television. Because <laughs> that's what I like. These things are our masters, and we only have one true master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, if there is something that has got you in bondage, here's what you do. You tell it to the church. You confess your sins to one another, and we pray for you and check on you. That is my exhortation to you, members of New Creation Church. Confess your sins to one another. We will not judge you. We are not better than you. We are all debtors. We all need Christ Jesus. Confess your master and find a better one. Second, God wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. You realize that? This is astounding. Be amazed with the fact that God actually wants to be with you. You are one out of seven billion-ish people in the world. I mean, who are you? How many celebrities are lining up at your door because they want to be with you? Right? No one knows you. No one knows me. What percentage of earth knows your name? Nobody knows you. Nobody knows me. Nobody cares about me. I got my wife. I got my kids. I got my church family. That's it. (laughs) Nobody knows who I am. No one knows who you are. I had a friend back in Minnesota. He used to live out in California. And you know who his friends were growing up? Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. They actually invited him to move in with them. They said, would you move in with us? This is Jonathan Pruitt. Would you move in with us? They actually said no. He was going in another direction, like Jesus. He was just switching, if I remember the story correctly. But even these guys, nobody's going to know them in 100 years. And yet God wants to be with you. Is mind-blowing. Absolutely stunning to me. It reminds me of uh, a story I heard. 
This was just incredible to me. It's back in college, had a professor. Angela House sat for this professor. He married us. His name was Jason. His wife was Kara. Was Kara. Still is. Lovely people. We love them. They have four kids. Two biological, two adopted. And they had to go to Ethiopia to adopt these two boys. Jonathan and David. They said, we're going to go adopt these two boys. Cute as, cute as could be. It's going to take six months. Will you house sit for us? And I was like, yeah, sure. Great. So she's house sitting. But before they go, I say, wow. You really love your sons, don't you? You are going to Ethiopia for six months to go get your boys, get your son. You know what he told me? It's nothing compared to leaving heaven. <laughs> it's nothing compared to leaving heaven. This is the picture of what you have in Exodus. God's like, that's my son. I'm going to go get him. I want to be with him. And that's what my friend Jason's like. My sons are over there. I'm going to go get them. I'm going to go be with them. I'm going to set up a tabernacle and have ram skin and porpoise skin on it. So that way I can be with my people. And then finally God says, John, John chapter 1 verse 14, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt means tabernacled. He didn't abode in ram skin. He abode in human skin. So I'm going to come and I'm going to get my people. God came down as a person. As we go through Exodus, you, we will explain how Exodus itself anticipates that the Messiah will fulfill the tabernacle. We are waiting for the tabernacle to come in the form of a person. We are waiting. Be astounded that God has come for you in the person of Jesus Christ. He loves you. He really loves you. Thirdly, We see that God has come to be with his people. So at the risk of preaching to the choir, I charge you and I ask you, do you want to be with God's people? Do you? Do you want to image God and reflect his character to the world? Do you want to elevate being with the family of God as of first importance in your life? Do you? I hear people sometimes say, well, I don't think there's anything going on this Sunday, so I should be there. Like, what do you mean? Sunday's going on on Sunday. Like, church is going on on Sunday. That's your family. Be with your family. We love our family. We want to be with one another. And all of you here, I say, well done. The Lord bless you. And he is pleased with your presence here. He wants you to be here to reflect his character. He is a God who wants to be with his people and we too should want to be with his people. That looks like meeting on Sunday mornings. That looks like saying, hey, come to my house. Hey, can I come to your house? It means like actually wanting to be with one another. Like there's a family here if you're willing to have it. Like it's pretty great actually. It's really great. And one thing, that, one thing I heard recently, and it just stopped me in my tracks, I've heard, all, I've heard people say things like, I'm just looking for a church with two things, and these are two good things. Good preaching and good community. I'm like, amen, good preaching and good community. But you do realize good community means that you will have to be with people that you don't enjoy being with, right? Like, it goes two ways, right? Like, good community does not just mean, I'm here, and I'm fine, and if I like you, I'm going to go to your house. That's not what good community means. Good community is a two-way street, right? The whole church is going to be 
harmonious and be on the same page, that means the whole church has to actually be seeing one another, right? So you see how this can get tricky. It means like having that person over that just grates on you, like you actually like welcome them into your home. Because what you have in common is infinitely more valuable than what you don't have in common. Jesus, right? Like, maybe we have nothing in common, but I can pray with you. I can ask you what you read in the Bible, and we can have fellowship there. So I just ask you, do you want our church to be harmonious and whole? Do you want community to flourish? I know you do. So what do we do to make that happen? We have people over, we go to their graduation parties, we just live life together. And it's not just simply waiting for them to do something to you. You reciprocate, you invite, you reflect God's heart to be with his people by desiring to be with his people as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God who wants to be with his people. You do. And you have come in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, and he has taken away our sins so that we can be with you. The golden calf stood between you and your people. Sin was a barrier, and Jesus has torn down the barrier. He, God in the flesh, has said, My life for yours. The sun will go dark on me so that the light of favor from God's face will shine on you forever. So by faith, we trust in you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you that you have come near to us to show us that God does want to be with us. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would grant us the grace to reflect your heart and image you to the world by showing the church loves the church. And out of our love for one another, we grow And we love the world outside of our walls. May we be a people that want to be with you and a people that want to be with one another. In your son's name we pray.